Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of the San Diego Sheriff's Department. In this first installment, you will hear directly from the homicide unit who worked tirelessly on the murder investigation of Teresa Selecki. Thanks to their combined efforts and the utilization of cutting-edge forensic techniques, they were able to shed some light on the darkness that had consumed the family of Ms. Selecki since her shocking and brutal murder in 1984. Thank you again for tuning in, and please enjoy True Crime Inside Cold Cases at the San Diego Sheriff's Department. My name is Troy Dugal, and I'm a uh, San Diego Sheriff's homicide detective. I currently work in the cold case unit. Cold cases are determined when an active homicide team has worked the case fully. There are no more leads on that case. And then as a unit, we take a look at it, see if there's anything that we can possibly do that has not been done. And if there is, we pursue it. If there's not, we hope that technology changes in the future, and then the cold case team will take over and do the investigation from there. I'm Will Altenhoff. I'm a detective with the Sheriff's Department in the Homicide Unit, and I'm assigned to the cold case team. We have cases ranging all the way back to 1931, and we review the cases and the case files to see if we can develop additional information, additional leads, in hopes of resolving a case. My name is Jeffrey Vandersip, and I'm a Senior Crime and Intelligence Analyst with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. An analyst in an investigative unit is really kind of the researcher, uh, the, the companion to the detectives to assist them with any aspect of their case that may need an extra pair of hands. And there's pretty much a problem with every one of those cases or it would have been solved or it would have been continued to be worked on. In cold case, you're forced with the task of getting over a lot of humps and bringing in new technology or new interviews and hoping for something new in the case. That huge break in a cold case terrorizing California for decades. Police say they now have the Golden State Killer in custody. And they use DNA testing to find him. So many families are relieved this morning. Detectives working the case for decades, but D'Angelo not a suspect until days ago when they got a break. They say cutting edge DNA testing allowed them to make a match. The answer was and always was going to be in the DNA. With the Golden State Killer, law enforcement agencies became more and more aware about this new technique to possibly find um, suspects in older crimes, as long as there was DNA. Investigative genetic genealogy, it is new. It's, it's a new term to all of us. And it's one of those things where you just can't sit down in a chair and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to use genealogy to solve this case, because you've got to know how to do it. Uh, we met, we talked about it, none of us knew how to do it, but we really wanted to try it and we wanted to press forward. We had the support of the command, the Sheriff's Department fully supported it, the Crime Lab supported it, and we decided to press forward and give it a roll. Investigative genetic genealogy is basically using DNA to find people. That's what genealogists do. There's private labs that uh, take this DNA uh, in its raw form and they upload it into a database. And in the database you hope to match with biological relatives. So when you get matches in these genealogy databases, you know that there are family members out there. 
So essentially, once we uh, build up the tree and we have the most common recent ancestor, the unknown suspect lives somewhere in this thousands of people. The initial two family members of the unknown suspect that have previously submitted their DNA, we have to make that triangle much smaller. And we have to focus on test targeting people, talking to people, identifying the family tree. Part of the problem with us tackling this case on our own and me being able to go to Captain Gardner and saying we can do this is I had to be confident that we could do it. I right away discovered that the support of a genealogist was going to be mandatory. No matter what we did on the internet looking it up, we, we were going to need a, a human who was experienced in using genealogy to identify suspects, victims, uh, missing persons, people who had done this before. When I called the FBI and I talked to the FBI on the Golden State Killer case, they told me that they had utilized a consultant and her name was Barbara Ray Venter. Um, she helped them and now I get in touch with her. I tell her I have a case and can she help me? And she gives me those two options. She used uh, genealogy volunteers to build family trees. She manages it all and then gives me the advice. Or for free, she was just like, if you show me what you're doing, I can tell you you're not going the right direction or you need to go a different direction. And she did that for us on this case. We decided to use her. I probably called her, not exaggerating, 50 times over the year. So once a week, that's about what I called her and said, you know, I'm totally stuck or I just ran into, you know, we're running up the family tree and I see that this person was adopted. How do I even figure out who this person's real name is because I've got to get the bloodline of that adopted name. And she coached us through that and then we did it. Our decision to embark upon this within the unit, I think came out of our desire to take some ownership over how this unfolded rather than having to deal exclusively with a consultant who would have some pieces of the puzzle but not in the entire picture. We also have the homicide knowledge of investigations. So we kind of just wrapped it all up into one. And I think because we all brought uh, similar but slightly different skills to it, we also realized pretty quickly that we could do this uh, as a team uh, pretty effectively. Once we got to the point where we were looking at which cases were gonna be good for genealogy, the Teresa Selecki case rose to the top. The Teresa Selecki case was one of my cases from the very start of when I came to Cold Case three years ago. It's, it was in there. Because it was assigned to me, I drew the lucky straw and I ended up as the lead detective on the case. I worked hand in hand with Detective Altenhoff and analyst Vandersip, and we did literally the same job for a full year. The only difference was I did the sales pitches on the telephone. That was really it. Uh, Teresa Slecki was a uh, young lady. She was uh, in her late 20s. She went out with a friend and went to a local bar in Vista. Afterwards, they went back to the friend's house and then Teresa left to use a payphone. And while she was at that payphone, we believe is when uh, she was either forcibly taken or she gave someone a ride. The next morning she was found off of Gopher Canyon Road in uh, the county areas of Vista. Her body was found between 4 and 4.30 and uh, she was next to her vehicle. 
um, laying on the roadway. It occurred on January 11th, 1984. They did the initial investigation. The patrol deputies called out the homicide team. Homicide team came out. Homicide detective back then was Bob Berger. He was the initial lead on the case. He responded and he did what homicide does. He collected evidence, photographed, checked with witnesses, did an area canvas, and he also noticed on the buttock of the naked female was a uh, human DNA stain. That stain ended up being semen, and later that semen became valuable in what's going to be our cold case genealogy case. Then the crime lab um, uh, kicked into gear and submitted the DNA that was required by the commercial lab for uh, a suitable analysis. Now once the commercial lab uh, had done its work, then essentially we get an email saying, we're done and we've got a zip file of the entirety of uh, analysis of the DNA sequence. That raw DNA data file gets uploaded into genealogy databases. We chose GEDmatch because that was one of the two uh, sites that was openly friendly to law enforcement, and that's what we did. So once that gets entered, the raw DNA data then compares to other people who are in that same database, and you're hoping to find a blood relative. And in this case, we did. We found blood relatives within the databases that allowed us to start the genealogy investigation. The DNA comparison or chromosome overlap is measured in centimorgans. Centimorgans is a measurement of an overlapping chromosome. So if you and I were related, our chromosomes would overlap. And then the distance of that overlap is measured. And that's what they call centimorgans. And the highest centimorgan match we had for the male profile off of Teresa Selecki's body was about 168 centimorgan, somewhere around there. That is pretty low. It puts it at the third to fourth cousin range. We had other profiles that were a little lower than that, say under 100, but we took those two highest profiles and we built family trees up until we came to multiple generations above both profiles and we found the most common recent ancestor. When we have the most common recent ancestor of the two relatives that are related to the male DNA profile, that means that the male DNA profile must exist in that triangle. The bottom line is then when you get that person and you build down, you populate your tree with every single child, every descendant from there down, and you're trying to identify your suspect based on Santa Morgan matches and location. The San Diego location is important because he had to have come here at some point and maybe his family was here one generation, two generations before he was here. All you know is that this person is 100 centimorgans away from this person. That gives you some idea of how close they are. But we realized pretty quickly that if you're third cousins with the person, you have a lot of third cousins. And unless you build a tree you have no frame of reference to know which direction to head in. So we take that first person and then 
you know, we build up their trees. And then you hope that other people who are also in that list of matches start showing up as you build the trees. So the first few trees we built were complete dead ends because we, ju we just couldn't go any further. But we just would abandon that. Um, it'd be like abandoning that line of inquiry and then we start another one. And eventually we started a tree that really kind of took off and we were able to start seeing the connections between people. So eventually though, you have to start target testing because that's when you start honing in on where in all this noise of, of people, uh, your suspect comes from. And target testing is basically calling up people and asking them, you tell them who we are, what the purpose of our investigation is, and we solicit their cooperation to help us by providing us with their DNA. It's not like throwing darts at the dartboard where we just go, well, let's, we'll just target test that person for no particular reason. There was a method to our madness in terms of, of identifying people that we felt were going to put us closer to the identity. And that was by using uh, our own sort of algorithms as to how people related. Well, if this person is a second cousin to this person, but a fourth cousin to that person, that may mean this. So we start identifying people that would help define that. We tested an 82-year-old woman named Ethel. Her centimorgans came back at 1,105. We're super excited because we know that where our suspect fits is in a very small space, family-wise. And she was the oldest person in the tree that was living that I could call and ask for her consent to participate in DNA studies through Ancestry.com. With that, we knew we were in the right area and we knew with 1100 Centimorgan match that we were looking for probably someone who was a descendant of either her father or one of her siblings. And I called her, I talked to her extensively and I said, Ethel, you must have a half brother out there. And she was very cute elderly lady and said, oh no, no, well, nope. No way, my father is, you know, he was a good man, a religious man, no way. And we struggled with that because we want to believe people. On the other hand, DNA doesn't lie. Basically through genealogy, we learned that the suspect's immediate family came from Dallas, Texas. We knew uh, based off of training and research that when someone gets adopted out of the family, it's really difficult to find out who they are. Uh, it, it, because adoption records get sealed. So we knew pretty much that the suspect was probably from the Dallas, Texas area, but we just didn't have a name. We knew where the suspect fit in as far as the relationship. We knew that the suspect was most likely a half-nephew of Ethel, but we just didn't know who the father was. We just didn't know who that connection was. We didn't know if, if Ethel's mother and father had a child together and gave it away or if the father had a mistress or an affair with someone who got pregnant and gave that child away. So we talked to her about her brothers and her sister. So she had two brothers and a sister and Ethel. Their branches go down and start to multiply, but we were pretty confident that this was gonna be in Ethel's branch because she's a half aunt. 
So we worked it and we tested some of these people and it just kept coming back that there was a half out there in her world. It was going to be her half brother's son or grandson, period. That's what it was going to be. And she couldn't get us over that hump. So we really got stopped right there. And it was very frustrating as the genealogy team here on the Sheriff's Department. Barbara Ray Venter had said, location is very important. It's not the cure-all, but at some point your suspect had to migrate to San Diego. I looked in this tree of thousands of people and I started looking for who was ever in San Diego County. I identified this woman and she had migrated to Vista, California. That happens to be the same city that the uh, crime scene is in. She had a son, his name is Richard. We were very excited, we identified Richard. We did law enforcement workups on Richard. Richard had no criminal history. Richard was still alive. Back in 1984, you have the bar where Teresa Selecki and her friend were last seen. You have the crime scene, which is about 10 miles north of the bar at Gopher Canyon Road. And oh, by the way, Richard lived almost dead in the middle of those two locations. So when you look at thousands of people and you're told as a brand new baby genealogist that location matters and this location falls straight in the middle of where she's missing from and the crime scene in 1984 and oh by the way he lives in an apartment right there they really get you excited. Um, we did workups, we identified him, we needed to get his DNA but we were very excited. The command was very excited. Everybody above me was very excited. Um, we ended up surreptitiously getting his DNA and we think it's him. We get the uh, DNA, we compare it, and it comes back and it's, it's a false. It's not gonna be the suspect. We were afraid that if we couldn't solve it, that that was really gonna be the end of the road uh, for genetic genealogy at the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. All of our egos deflated. The command came to us and said, hey, listen, this is the case we've given to you, and there's at least 12 more, and there may be many, many more. If we're gonna tackle these, you gotta solve it. We're not gonna take on another one until you solve this case. That was a, a big pill to swallow, but it was a reality pill. So uh, uh, myself, Detective Altenhoff, and Analyst Vandersip sat down and said, we're, we gotta do it, we gotta solve it. So what we did is we went back to the case file, reevaluated some of the people in there, and started talking to family members of a person of interest that was in the case file. I took a look at the individual who had been identified as the hitchhiker who had been picked up in the area where the murder took place. I decided, given all this work uh, that we had done, to just take a look at him and his family. And I remember approaching Troy, you know, Troy, I, I've been taking a look at this guy and hear me out, his path on his father's side leads to Dallas, Texas. And Ethel is from Dallas, and her family was rooted in Dallas. We knew Dallas somehow was probably the epicenter of our suspect's immediate family. Let's take a deeper look 
at this individual genealogically. Back in 1991, when the task force uh, got a hold of the case, they actually were able to identify that hitchhiker and they did a lot of typical detective work and they talked to the man who picked up the hitchhiker, got a composite drawing, and they were actually able to identify that hitchhiker as Charles Lane Morgan. Charles Morgan, unfortunately, died in a single vehicle accident in May of 1984, so only months after the initial homicide. So if he was the suspect of the murder, we don't know, the only way we could prove that is straight DNA comparison in our crime lab, his DNA to the unknown DNA profile we had up in the sheriff's crime lab. Not only was he deceased, he was also cremated. There was no DNA available, so in 1991, that lead on the hitchhiker also just stopped. So that went cold too. Now, we've done almost a year's worth of work doing this genealogy, coming down through the tree, finding Ethel, knowing that she's the half aunt of the unknown suspect, knowing where she grew up in Dallas County, Texas, and that her family migrated from Dallas County, Texas to San Diego. Uh, we looked at the hitchhiker and said, what can we do with it? He's cremated, it, the DNA is gone. Well, unlike the Sheriff's Crime Lab where they like to do one-to-one -one comparison of DNA, if you can identify his immediate family members and submit their DNA into GEDmatch, you can get all those relationships. So we did identify Charles Morgan's full sister and his half-sister. His full sister was very cooperative, talked to me, told me that her brother was not a very good man. Uh, he was a criminal in the past. She had no reason to believe he would ever murder a girl because I told her why I was talking to her. I asked her to participate in the genealogy study and she refused and she has a right to refuse. It was disheartening. As a lead investigator, I was like, oh, right here, right there's the answer. Then we identified Charles Morgan had a half-sister. She's right here in the San Diego area. Uh, Detective Altenhoff and I both drove to her place, introduced ourselves, talked to her, explained everything to her, asked her to participate, and she did. She consented to the DNA, which we were anxious about, but when you send off that saliva, you got six weeks to wait before you get your results back. That's, from a detective's point of view, that's horrible, six weeks waiting. But then she says, because she, we had made rapport with her, and um, she said, oh, do you want to see the genealogy book? It includes Charles, me, Charles' dad, Charles' dad's dad, everybody. And me and Will looked at each other like, are you kidding me? This just came and dropped in our lap? That's, you know, five years ago, if someone said a genealogy book, I, I would be like, yeah, I'm not sure what that even looks like. Seriously, I'd be like, you talking about a family picture book or what is it? But this delineated who's who, where they came from, when they were born, when they died, what they did for a living, just like when you're building family trees. We opened that book and my questions went right out the window. I asked her, I said, can I use my phone to take pictures of the book? And she let me and I brought it back to work and I showed the command and, and we, we kind of knew that her DNA was gonna come back as his half-sister. It would have been crazy if it wasn't, and it was.
in essence, even then the case was pretty much solved, but we wanted more. We're cops and you want as much possible evidence as you can. We dug deeper in the case file into the handwritten notes, not just the approved reports and stuff. And we were able to determine that Charles Morgan's uh, photograph matched the composite drawing. I actually re-interviewed the bartender who worked that night in 1984 when Teresa Selecki went missing. She had made a statement in 1984 as to all the persons in the bar. She knew them all, she named them all, but there was one unknown man. And in 1984, she described that man. That description matched Charles Morgan, now that we're in 2020. That was coincidental, but very good circumstantial evidence on top of the composite drawing is circumstantial evidence. On top of the half-sister DNA is good evidence. And, oh, by the way, he's Ethel's, she's his half-aunt. So, got the half-sister, got the half-aunt. You plug all those Santa Morgans in, and it's, that's him. So, but he's deceased. So, the case is solved, but we weren't able to press forward with the judicial system. Uh, it's important to resolve these cases because Teresa Selecki still had family members who are alive, and uh, they have a right to know. It's one of those things as a, an investigator, you don't want it to have that thought of, someone who committed a murder is still free, being out there running around. Um, maybe he had killed other people. Maybe he's still dangerous to the community. Uh, if you don't know, you're always wondering why. What drove the three of us, I think, uh, uh, to a big extent is it was Teresa herself. I mean, that was the motivation. Uh, uh, Teresa Selecki had, had moved to San Diego and had a huge life uh, in front of her. Um, and that was cut short by somebody. And what motivated us to, to take this to its end was our desire to bring some justice to her life, some um, honorable conclusion um, to, uh, for her that we could bring to her family. Unfortunately, her parents were deceased. Uh, even some of her siblings had passed away, but to those members of her family who are still left to be able to communicate to them that we have solved your sister's murder. That was what was important. That's what drives these investigators every day, is to bring some justice um, to a terrible crime and to solve, to, to put all these puzzle pieces together in a way that they can go to a district attorney or go to a family and say, this is what happened, this is how it happened, and this is who did it. Very satisfying for me to talk to Teresa Selecki's siblings. They were crying, emotional, but they were absolutely thrilled that this information came forward. It haunted them. It destroyed their family. Her murder destroyed their family, and they didn't know who did it or why it was done. So I called them and told them not only who did it, but circumstantially what I believed, how the events went down with the bar, the hitchhiker, the locations. They were very satisfied and every one of them talked about the closure, how the closure is gonna help them. I've been a police officer for 24 years. At any point in my career, if someone would have told me in, at the end of your career, you're gonna be solving cases with genealogy, I would have told them they're crazy. Uh, within the last couple of years, I realized it was going to be something I could do. We tackled it, we succeeded at it, and now we're using it. I believe genealogy, if done correctly, with enough time to afford to do it, is going to be successful 100% of the time. 
That's the beauty of it. It's the newest tool and it's successful. You just have to have the time, dedication, and training to get it done. That's different than opening up a cold case and going, what are the odds I'm going to solve this? The odds are low. You open up a genealogy case, the odds are very high. There's going to be that one that, you know, you get that hiccup and you can't get past, but um, I'm, I'm betting it's the new way to do business. Now that we've done this and it took three men one year to solve this case, I believe we can do it much faster now with the knowledge we've gained. And we've subsequently, since we did succeed, uh, we've submitted four cases for genealogy analysis. And that's not just looking for suspects. So that's the, the true beauty about the command letting us learn genealogy, succeeding at genealogy, and now the cold case team is focused on genealogy. We really have, we, our focus has completely changed. We're, each one of us have an open genealogy case. Thank you again for listening to the first episode of our official podcast. While this installment featured a true crime story from the Homicide Division, the Sheriff's Department has various units with many untold narratives. These range from dangerous, inspiring, sad or heartbreaking, exciting, and even sometimes bewildering stories. These unique stories are worth telling, and they stay with our staff forever. With that said, please stay tuned to hear future episodes that highlight and feature the dedicated work of the men and women of the San Diego Sheriff's Department. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.